Public Radio KMXT is supported by a grant from North Pacific Fuel, serving and continuing the tradition of excellent service to the community at three locations, Marine Dock at 715 Shelikoff Street, Gas and Go at the Y, and Gas and Go at Mill Bay. It is nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, it is your public radio station broadcasting from beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where it is overcast and breezy. 93% humidity out at the airport right now, where they are also clocking easterly winds at 21 miles per hour and 10 miles of visibility. Weather service says rain is likely for today and tonight, mainly this afternoon and in the early evening. Mostly cloudy skies tonight with a high near or today with a high near 39, east winds to 25, gusting to 30. For tonight, look for a low around 33 with southeast winds to 25, should come down to 15 to 20 after midnight, but could gust as high as 40 tonight. For tomorrow, a chance of rain and snow before noon, followed by a chance of snow, mostly cloudy tomorrow, with a high near 36 and southeast winds to 15, becoming light and variable tomorrow afternoon. Coming up on the Midday Report, well, it's finally happened. Alaska's lone representative was sworn in yesterday. NPR's Robert Sprint reports a top priority is passage of a rules package. Any other time that would be routine, but after the highly unusual standoff that forced Republican Kevin McCarthy to make concessions to GOP opponents, new rules governing the U.S. House is top of mind. In exchange for getting the necessary votes from a hard right group of holdouts, now Speaker McCarthy agreed to various rules changes, including a concession that allows just one lawmaker to offer a resolution to oust the Speaker. Some other changes, like giving 72 hours to read bills before votes, are widely supported by House Republicans. But some moderate members aren't a solid yes vote yet on the package over concerns that slashing discretionary spending could hurt the Pentagon. Republicans have just a four-seat majority, so McCarthy can't afford more than a few defections. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. The president of Mexico is giving full-throated support of American immigration policies. NPR's Ada Peralta reports amid a North American leaders' summit the two countries are presenting an image of unity. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said that he and President Biden had a pleasant talk Sunday night. During a morning press conference, López Obrador vehemently defended U.S. plans to quickly expel any Cubans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, or Haitians who crossed the border seeking asylum without first getting permission. López Obrador said President Biden has Mexico's full support, especially, he said, because Biden is pushing policies unpopular with what López Obrador termed a right-wing Congress. The Congress, he says, budgets money for war. Instead, he says, they should send money to Latin American countries in crisis. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. 
NFL player DeMar Hamlin's back home in Buffalo, marking a remarkable comeback from a near-fatal tackle during a Bills-Bengals game one week ago. The University of Cincinnati Medical Center transferred Hamlin this morning to an unnamed hospital in Buffalo. One of the physicians who treated the Bills' safety, Dr. William Knight, told reporters today that Hamlin has met some key milestones in his journey to recovery. Dr. Pritz and I have spoken extensively with his care team in Buffalo, and I can confirm that he is doing well. And this is the beginning of the next stage of his recovery. During last Monday night's game between the Bills and Cincinnati Bengals, Hamlin made a tackle, got to his feet, and crumpled to the ground. The 24-year-old suffered cardiac arrest. CPR was administered. The terrifying ordeal unfolded in front of players, spectators, in the stands, and millions more at home. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was down 112 points at 33,517. It's NPR. NPR News is presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor llama al 907-481-2400. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. Alaska and every other state has a fully-fledged member of the U.S. House again, along with the entire House of Representatives, Mary Peltola took the oath of office early Saturday morning. Congratulations. You are now members of the 118th Congress. The mass swearing-in followed a four-day fight among Republicans over electing Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. It took 15 rounds of voting before McCarthy won over holdouts in his own party. Peltola said by tweet, quote, now the work begins, close quote. Like all Democrats, she voted 15 times for Hakeem Jeffries. He's now the House Minority Leader. With the House organization underway, Peltola will soon get her committee assignments. During her three-month tenure in the last Congress, Peltola served on the Nat Natural Resources Committee and the Education and Labor Committee. Ketchikan's Borough Assembly has pledged to give the local school district a reprieve after earlier threatening to build the school district directly for health care expenses. It's the latest development in an ongoing dispute between Ketchikan's Borough and school district over health care payments. Premiums paid by the district and its employees have not kept up with the cost of health care to the tune of more than $5.2 million as of the end of December. The borough, which administers the district's self-insurance program, had previously threatened to stop cutting checks for the school district's employees' health care costs at the start of the year. But, as KRBD's Eric Stone reports, Ketchikan's Borough Assembly is backing off that threat for now on four conditions. Ketchikan's school district must minimize the growth of its health care debt for the rest of this school year and stop the debt from growing by the start of next fiscal year in July. And it has to come up with a multi-year plan to repay the debt and agree to face consequences if it doesn't. Those are the four conditions of an agreement reached between borough and school district officials. Borough Assemblymember Grant Echohawk applauded the agreement. He said it would address the problem and prevent it from happening again. I'm confident that my colleagues here at this table and also on this on the at at the school um on the school board are all very concerned about this uh and not only do is does this agreement help us get a solid footing to move us forward 
but there's there's continued communication built into it. School district officials had warned that if the borough stopped paying for health care expenses on January 1st as planned, they would be forced to make immediate cuts to athletics, tutoring, and other programs. And even that likely wouldn't be enough, they said last month. Borough officials are concerned about the spiraling costs of health care for teachers and staff, saying last month that the school district's accumulating debt was threatening the overall financial health of the borough. Assemblymember Jeremy Bynum supported the agreement, though he said he wasn't sure how enforceable it would be if the school district continued to lag on health care payments in the next fiscal year. I think it has some pretty good language in it to address a lot of the concerns that we have. I believe this is a um, truly a leap of faith, if we could use those words, in the sense that this is only a memorandum of agreement. I would question the legality of how binding it actually is. He added language to the agreement aimed at preventing the school district from asking for more money for operations outside the usual budget process. That passed 5-1 to one over an objection from Echo Hawk, who argued it was unnecessary. The agreement itself passed unanimously. That was one of three assembly votes aimed at alleviating the health care budget crisis. In another, the assembly voted to increase the school district's budget by about $700,000 to pay down some of the health care debt, as Mayor Rodney Dial explained. What we're talking about tonight is money that's actually already been spent by the district. So what the Assembly's talking about is essentially um, forgiving some of that debt. So it's not like we're adding an expense. That also passed unanimously. But the third proposal, which would allow the borough to spend an additional $1.9 million to keep up with the district's health expenses, faced opposition from the mayor. Borough attorney Glenn Brown explained that the measure was necessary to ensure the borough didn't spend money it wasn't legally allowed to. This ordinance is to keep the borough safe because the loss of reserves from the, the district's underfunding of its health fund is endangering the the parent organization, in essence, we need to appropriate more money so that the borough doesn't violate the law. Assembly members unanimously approved the appropriation in the first of two votes on the measure, but Dial said he planned to veto it later this month unless the school district provided a detailed budget to the assembly. He accused the district of dramatically underfunding its health insurance program against the advice of its insurance broker. If I can't see your budget, the detailed budget, then I can't verify that you're accurately reporting your finances. If I can't verify, I can't approve. That's my responsibility as mayor to this community. If the district has nothing to hide, then they have everything to gain from transparency and working with the borough. He accused the district of stonewalling borough officials' request for a line-item budget detailing exactly what the district spends its money on. He said appropriating the money could leave the borough unable to weather emergencies like the resurgence of the COVID-19 pandemic or an economic downturn. He suggested modifying the measure to require the district to cut spending. He said that would put the district on a path to repaying the debt. The $1.9 million appropriation is scheduled to come back to the Assembly later this month for a final vote. If Dial vetoes the measure at that point, a five-member supermajority could override the veto at the following meeting. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. An Alaskan company is expanding Homer's ability to recycle plastics by turning it into synthetic lumber. KBBI's Sean McDermott has the story. When Patrick Simpson pulled back the brush above the tide line during a beach cleanup effort in Prince William Sound, he was shocked to see a kaleidoscope of shredded plastic. Growing up in Cordova as the son of a fisherman, beach debris wasn't new to Simpson. 
But seeing this tangle of tiny plastic pieces felt different. And it's going to sit there forever. And I don't know what the long-term effects of that are. As an engineer and an entrepreneur, Simpson decided he wanted to find a way to help. So he launched a new business called Alaska Plastic Recovery, with the goal of recycling plastic waste into synthetic lumber. It's hard to avoid plastic. From food packaging to electronics, it's everywhere. But disposing of plastics is complicated, especially in Alaska, since most of the state's recycling has to be transported to the lower 48 to be processed. From there, it's often shipped abroad. As plastics degrade in the environment, they break into fragments called microplastics, which have been found in everything from rainwater to seafood like salmon and mussels. With the pollution he'd witnessed as motivation, Simpson dreamed of turning post-consumer plastics into something useful. Um, it's filling our landfills, it's ending up on our beaches, it's, um, it's getting burned and polluting our atmosphere. We, we can do a better job. As the COVID-19 pandemic brought life to a virtual standstill in 2020, Simpson used his newfound time to apply for funding to develop his new business. It took hundreds of hours of research and eight separate proposals to different federal agencies, but Simpson eventually managed to secure half a million dollars of funding through an environmental protection agency program. With Alaska's rural communities and limited road network, Simpson knew that a conventional model, collecting plastics from across the state and processing them at a central hub, would be prohibitively expensive. So he came up with a way to transport his processing facility to the pollution itself. Simpson designed a mobile recycling facility in a movable 53-foot trailer, which can grind, melt, and form plastic into lumber on site. Transforming plastic into building materials isn't itself a new concept, but April Richards of the EPA says Simpson's innovative design was perfect for Alaska, turning waste into a commodity. Like we want these technologies to really be used and have impact. We don't just want to like move the needle on research. We really want commercializable technology. Simpson hopes to be able to repackage his mobile processor into smaller containers to be able to reach communities off the road system. That could help recycle retired fishing nets, plastic ocean debris, and post-consumer plastics. But for now, he's focused on building a market for his synthetic lumber. In October, Simpson produced his first 100 samples of 2x4s, tinted emerald green from the pipe thread protectors he's recycling from the North Slope. He says he envisions it being used for non-structural projects like decking, fence posts, picnic tables, and raised garden beds. He recently gave samples to American Fast Freight, a logistics and transportation company, who are trying out the plastic lumber as a possible substitute for the wood used to protect their cargo. It currently costs Simpson $1.87 to produce one pound of lumber, and based on market prices, he plans to charge about $2 per pound, or around $30 for an eight-foot-long 2 by 4 It's not going to be an incredibly great moneymaker, but it can break even. He says he needs at least 50,000 pounds of plastic to make processing in a location make sense financially. It's taken a network of community organizations around the state for Simpson to transform growing stockpiles of plastic into lumber. Work with the waste reduction group Sustainable Seward led to a connection with the Kenai Peninsula Borough Transfer Facility in Seward, which now collects plastic for Simpson directly. It saves Seward money since they no longer have to pay to transport plastics to a central facility. He hopes he can convince other communities like Soldatna and Homer to follow suit and to store plastics for him to process on site. Cook Inlet Keeper helped establish collection points in the Soldatna area this past summer at the Good Sustainable Grocery Store and Inlet Keeper's Community Action Studio. And starting this past fall, people in Homer now have the chance to participate too. 
You can drop your plastics off in the white super sacks outside of Sustainable Wares on Ocean Drive and at the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies. Simpson is collecting plastic types 1, 2, 4, and 5, which can all be mixed together, though he asks that you remove bottle caps and clean out food, especially peanut butter and ketchup. If you're not sure what kind of plastic it is and it can be recycled, go ahead and throw it in anyway. If it gets to us and we can't use it, we actually kind of set it aside until we figure out what to do with it. The Homer Transfer Station only accepts type 1 screw top bottles and type 2 plastics. So this is a chance to recycle more common household plastics, like certain plastic bags, clear plastic clamshells for salad greens, and yogurt containers. Henry Reiske is a marine debris coordinator with the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies. He says they're filling about one super sack per week right now, but sees this as a great opportunity going forward. They're looking for regular commuters with trucks who might be willing to transport the super sacks of collected plastic to Soldatna and are offering a small gas reimbursement. Reisky's work with coastal monitoring and leading group cleanups gives him a clear grasp of the pollution washing up along the beaches of Kachemak Bay. Because of the tides and the currents in the bay, Reisky says litter that makes it to the area's beaches is mostly local consumer waste. It's, it's from what we're, us in the community are doing. That may be disconcerting, he says, but it means that we can solve it. He's excited that Simpson's project can help expand the community's recycling capacity and dramatically cut down on shipping plastic waste to the lower 48 and abroad. Recycling staying local in Alaska is a big deal. There's not much of it going on. Reporting in Homer, I'm Sean McDermott. The National Climate Assessment is a chance for researchers across the United States to share the local impacts of global climate change with Congress and the rest of the nation. The fifth edition of the assessment is set to come out in late 2023. Authors of the Alaska chapter are now asking citizens to share what climate change means to them during the assessment's public comment period. KTOO's Anna Canny has more. Just over a year ago, a series of snow and rainstorms in Fairbanks caused power outages, damaged homes, and disrupted emergency services. Alyssa Quintine remembers it as Snowmageddon. Of my house because I had like six feet of ice that had, you know, stocked up, and I had a tree that had fallen and frozen on my roof. Quintine is a community organizer for the Alaska Center and a co-author on the upcoming National Climate Assessment. She says that extreme weather in Fairbanks is just one of the climate impacts featured in the assessment's Alaska chapter. So it's like we're trying to represent like the impacts that are happening to residents in real time. Across the state, heavier rains, changing snowfall, warming waters, and ocean acidification are causing profound changes to the environment. Now Alaskans can tell the nation what those changes mean for them. Until January 27th, Quintine and other authors are asking the public to review their draft of the new National Climate Assessment. The climate assessment is mandated by Congress. It pulls together diverse experts to give an update on climate change impacts across different regions of the U.S. It's an opportunity for us regular, regular people to um, essentially tell the story of what is happening in our own state to other states, and to Congress. So it's a pretty big deal. The assessment doesn't mandate any specific action, but Quintine says it will provide direction for lawmakers, researchers, and local organizers as the climate continues to change. The Alaska chapter's lead author, Henry Huntington, with the Ocean Conservancy, says this edition of the report focuses more on humans than ever before. Our charge, our assignment has been uh, altered a bit, which is to focus more on the society side. Now, what does this mean for for people, what does this mean for people around Alaska? Rather than, you know, getting into the details of 
the, the biophysical system and, and so on. In southeast Alaska, the changing climate has impacted subsistence farming, fisheries, snow and rainfall, and invasive species. But this assessment goes beyond the natural environment to discuss COVID-19, housing discrimination, healthcare, crisis response, and even internet access. Huntington hopes that the assessment will show how the changing environment could make existing social vulnerability and inequity worse. So it's that idea that climate change is happening within the broader social context that's already there and is going to add more stresses to, to what we're already experiencing. Quintine hopes that the comments submitted this month will help the climate assessment to be the most useful resource it can be for all who read it. We're doing it for education. We're doing it for awareness, but we're also doing it for empowerment so people can make the best informed decisions moving forward, whether they be someone like me, whether they be the president, whether they be a fisher out, you know, on the Yukon. Alaskans who wish to review the draft and submit their comment can do so online. All comments are due by January 27th. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. KMXT Local News is underwritten in part by GCI. GCI has adjusted store hours across the state to keep our customers and employees as safe as possible during this time. The most up-to-date store hours are available on GCI.com. The Supreme Court hands down a number of decisions affecting businesses. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Minute. Justices today allowed Meta to pursue a lawsuit against NSO Group, which installed spyware through the chat program WhatsApp on the phones of journalists, dissidents, and others. The high court declined to hear a challenge to the federal government's Great Recession-era takeover of mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and it turned away Pfizer's attempts to cover out-of-pocket expenses for certain Medicare recipients who are prescribed Pfizer's expensive heart medication. Federal officials said the plan amounted to illegal kickbacks. Drug giant Teva says enough U.S. states have joined a $4 billion opioid settlement for it to go forward. The settlement was reached in November. The company says it's still negotiating with two holdout states. I'm Novasafo with the Marketplace Minute. Marketplace Minute is supported by JLL, a leader in commercial real estate. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to your Island Messenger for Monday. It is the ninth day of January, the year 2023. The sun rose today at 9.48. It will set again at 4.45. That will give us six hours and 58 minutes, just about seven hours of daylight, a gain of two minutes and 38 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record high for this date was 51 degrees set in 1916, and our record low was three degrees set back in 1972. Currently 41 degrees, overcast and breezy. They have east winds to 21 miles per hour out at the airport right now. 93% humidity and 10 miles of visibility. The Weather Service says rain is likely for the rest of the afternoon and tonight and tomorrow, at least until 7 a.m. or so tomorrow. Then it'll be replaced by rain and snow between 7 a.m. and 1 p.m. Then just a chance of snow after 1 in the afternoon tomorrow. For today, look for a high of 39, east winds to 25, gusting to 30. For tonight, look for a low about 33, southeast winds to 25, should come down to 15 or so after midnight, but could gust as high as 40 tonight. 
Here are your local tides coming up. We have a high tide at 2.55 this afternoon here on the east side. That will be a 9.2 foot tide, followed by a low tide at 9.42 this evening of minus four tenths. Over on the west side, you have a high tide coming up at 3.26 this afternoon. That will be a 14-foot tide in Larson Bay. Followed by a low tide at 10.15, strike that 10.13 p.m. of minus 7 tenths. Mariners, be aware we have gale warnings on both sides of the island for today. From Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side, look for east winds to 35 knots and seas to 19 feet offshore. For tonight, southeast 30, diminishing to 20 knots after midnight, seas to 14 feet. And for tomorrow on our east side, south winds to 10 knots and seas to 10 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, gale warning today, northeast winds to 35 knots, seas to 11 feet. For tonight, east winds to 30 knots, seas to 10 feet, should come down to 7 feet after midnight tonight. For tomorrow, southeast 15 and seas to 3 feet in the Shelikoff. The following are upcoming Kodiak Island Borough public meetings. On Wednesday, January 11th, the Planning and Zoning Commission will be having a work session in the Borough Assembly Chambers. That will be happening at 6.30 p.m. On Thursday, January 12th, the Assembly will be having a work session in the Kodiak Island Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. On Wednesday, January 18th, there will be three meetings. The Solid Waste Advisory Board will be having their regular meeting in the Kodiak Fisheries Research Center at 5.15 p.m. The Planning and Zoning Commission will be having a regular meeting in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. And the Assembly and City Council will be having a joint work session in the Library's Multipurpose Room at 6.30 p.m. And on Thursday, January 19th, the Assembly will be having its regular meeting in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. All meetings are open to the public and meeting packets are available at the Kodiak Island Borough website. Contact the clerk at 907-486-9310 with any questions. Listen for the Island Messenger here on... Cheryl's a little early there. Notice is hereby given. There will be a Board of Education work session on January 9th. That's today, 2023, at 6.30 p.m., followed by a special meeting in the District Services Conference Room, number F-140 of the Old High School Wing. The meeting agenda and packet are available at the Kodiak Island Borough School District website, Items on the special meeting agenda include the 22-23 certificated contract and an executive session in which budget and negotiations will be discussed. For more information, contact the Secretary of the Board of Education at 907-486-7566. The Kodiak City Council will hold a work session tomorrow. The meeting will begin at 7.30 p.m. and be held at the Kodiak Public Library. They will also be having a regular meeting on Thursday, also at 7.30 p.m., also in the library. Both meetings are open to the public, and the public member, members of the public are also encouraged to tune in right here at KMXT on 100.1 FM. The meeting will also be web-streamed, and that link and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website. If you have any other questions, contact the City Clerk at 907-486-8636. The Lutic Museum is renovating its gallery. 
They'd like you to join them on Wednesday between 5.30 and 7 p.m. at the museum for their second community conversation to share your ideas about their exhibits. It'll be facilitated by Sarah Asper-Smith of Exhibit AK, and it's an opportunity for you to provide direct input. Come help them envision future exhibits. It's free and open to the public and generously supported by the CONIAG and the Institute for Museum and Library Sciences. But again, that begins at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday at the Alutic Museum. Galley Tables is coming up on Friday, and they are looking for a storyteller still. The theme is tried and true or shiny and new. If you have a story you'd like to tell, you can sign up at galleytables.com or send an email to galleytables at gmail.com. And we still have some KMXT calendars. If you still haven't come by to pick up your calendar and you're a member, come by and pick up your free calendar and you can get additional copies for $15 a piece. We are also shamelessly selling them to the public at large for $20 a piece. Just come on by anytime between 10 and 5 p.m. weekdays. Commercial fishing vessels participating in the 2023 Tanner Crab Fishery, the Coast Guard would like to remind you to consider the stability of your vessel when loading crab pots. Stacking the pots changes the center of gravity, and that affects stability, especially in icing conditions. A vessel with six inches or less of freeboard at amidships may be operating in an especially hazardous condition. Personnel from the Coast Guard Safety Office in Kodiak will be walking the docks providing voluntary safety compliance checks with an emphasis on stability. You can also contact them at 907-486-5918 or just stop by their office in the subway building downtown if you have any questions. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT two times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and during the midday report at 1220. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org. 